Well, today we are taking a short break from studying the book of Luke and starting a new sermon series called The Community of Christ. And it's an opportunity for us to review and apply the community group study that we ended last year through the letter to the Hebrews. It's also an opportunity to remind ourselves who we are as a community of Christ. Over the next six weeks, we want to be thinking about who we are as the people of God, specifically people God God has brought into the new covenant of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before we start today's message, let's review a bit about the book of Hebrews. The letter was written in the mid to late A.D. 60s, making it about 30 years since Jesus' death and resurrection. Christianity is spreading rapidly, such that some are feeling threatened by it and persecution is breaking out in some areas. The letter is written to minister to a group of young Christians in such an area. These Christians are mostly from a Jewish background and are being persecuted by their own people who are accusing them of abandoning the faith of their fathers. And they are being tempted to go back to the old covenant systems blend in and get relief from their sufferings. The author of Hebrews is telling them that the old covenant was just a shadow of the truth and that the true substance of God's plan for salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, the author of Hebrews is telling them that Jesus is better. In this sermon series, we will see the great themes of Hebrews brought to bear on our lives. We'll see themes like the atoning work of Christ, the newness of the covenant he established by his blood, and his sovereignty and reign over all things. We'll also talk about the kind of people we should be in relation to one another, how we should love one another, how we serve one another, and how we serve together with one another. Finally, we'll also look at how we can live and worship the way we were called to in Christ. Well, as we begin to look at today's text, let me share with you a story John Piper tells about hearing Billy Graham preach. This is what he says. On Wednesday night at the Metronome, Billy Graham took his text from John 3.16 and began to talk about God from the two words, for God. But what struck me in that message was how often he spoke of death. He was very blunt and forthright and looked us all in the face and said something like, in 50 or 70 years, you will all be dead. Then he made it clear that he meant we would all be in either heaven or in hell. He said, when you were born, you were born to live forever, and you will, either in heaven or in hell. Then he went on to tell us how to reach heaven and escape hell through faith in Jesus Christ. That sounds like a very Billy Graham message. Today we will see how we can live forever in heaven as we are saved by the sacrifice 
of Christ. If you would open your copy of God's Word with me today and turn to the second chapter of Hebrews, we'll look specifically at verses 14 to 18 today, but we'll start back in verse 1 to get some context. So Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God above bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. May God bless us with the understanding of his word. Well, I think Billy Graham's focus on God and death, even while preaching John John 3.16, is entirely appropriate. In so many ways, our society expresses its worry about and is focused on death. American filmmaker Woody Allen summed up our uneasiness with death when he said, 
It's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And as we approach April 15th, we're reminded of the familiar quote, there are only two sure things in life, death and taxes. Our struggle with death goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when death enters the world as a result of Adam and Eve's sin of disobedience. Since that time, man has struggled against the triple enemy of sin, death, and the devil until the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look to the first verse of our text today. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Here we are the children. This refers back to verse 13 where it describes the children that God has given, which is a quote from the book of Isaiah. And we are human, flesh and blood, every one of us. We are born of an earthly mother and father, and having a human nature, we are neither angels nor gods. Reading this verse, it's easy to read lightly through the second part and get into the rest of the text about defeating the devil and death and such great themes, but these are some very important words that we shouldn't handle lightly. It says, he himself likewise partook of the same things. These verses show us our first point, which is that Jesus came as a human. Jesus came as a human. The same things that he partook of are our flesh and blood. Christ became a human being. But don't be confused here. He did not come into being when he was born on earth. The author of Hebrews has taken great pains in the book to show that Jesus existed before the creation, indeed, for all of eternity. This event that we are speaking of is called the Incarnation, and we celebrate it every year at Christmas time. We show nice pictures of baby Jesus with Joseph and Mary in a nice clean manger with animals and shepherds and angels all around. This idea of Jesus, the Son of God, becoming human has been a difficult thing for people to understand and still is today. We struggle to wrap our brains around the idea of fully God and fully man. I think we tend to want to focus on the fully God part too often, and that is a slippery slope. Max Lucado describes in his down-to-earth style how we get a bit uncomfortable imagining the king of glory as truly one of us. He says, angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him, and had the synagogue leaders in Jerusalem known who was listening to their sermons. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him, or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing for sure. He was completely divine and completely human. 
For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. He got tired. He got headaches. To think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It is much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. Well, I think Max Lucado is right. It is a bit uncomfortable for us to think of Jesus this way, And if we're not careful, we can slip into the position of holding his humanity at arm's length while embracing his divinity. But what we must remember is that Jesus came to redeem every single bit of us, even those things that are uncomfortable to think about. In response to the idea of embracing only Christ's divinity, a 4th century theologian stated, what has not been assumed cannot be restored, meaning that for our redemption to reach into every dark corner of our existence, Jesus had to take on that existence in its entirety. So why did Jesus become human? Well, this brings us to our second point. Plainly, Jesus came to earth to die. He came to die. So let's look at the second half of verse 14 again. It says, He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, as the eternal Son of God in his divine nature, Jesus could not experience death. He was indestructible. But the sin and guilt in the world required death as a consequence. I was having a discussion with a friend of mine the other day and we were lamenting how so many people today want to hide behind the saying that God is love and that's all they want to think about. While we agree that God is love, he is so much more than that. And that's the point of verses like John 3.16. God loves us so much But at the same time, he is so concerned about justice and righteousness that he sent his own son to earth as a human being to die in our place. Some think Jesus' death was God's plan B. Man had messed up in the garden and sinned. Then things got so bad that God kind of cleaned the slate with the flood and Noah But then man couldn't follow all the rules in the Old Testament law sufficiently, so God had to come up with a plan B. But that's not how it worked. This has always been God's plan, and Jesus was a part of it from the beginning. The purpose of the Old Covenant was to show us our sins, and to point out our desperate need for a Savior that could cover our guilt once and for all. So what did Jesus' death accomplish? Well, this brings us to our third point. Jesus' death defeated and delivered. It defeated and delivered. 
So who did Jesus defeat? Well, Jesus defeated the devil. The end of verse 14 says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. When Satan seduced Adam and Eve into sinning in the Garden of Eden, he brought them under the curse of death. God has made death the punishment for disobedience. When he said in Genesis, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. In dying, Christ defeated Satan and took away his power to destroy through death. We'll talk about exactly how Jesus did this in a few minutes. But Jesus also delivered us from the fear of death. He delivered us from the fear of death. Our text continues from verse 14 and says, That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We've talked about death a little bit so far, but let's be clear. What Christ has done here doesn't mean that Christians won't die a physical death. It also doesn't mean that those deaths will never be painful. It also doesn't mean that Satan can't kill us. What it does mean is that though we may still be uncomfortable with the idea of our own deaths, We are no longer slaves to those fears because what this is all hinting at is our great hope of eternal life through Christ. Although many of you didn't know him, many of you know that my father died last November. Fourteen months previous, we had found out that he had stage four bladder cancer and the doctors very honestly told us that they had no cure for it. They could only try to prolong his life, which they did. He and I were talking on the same day we got the news, and what we talked about was that all of us were going to physically die someday. And there were a specific number of days that we all had left to live, which only God knows. My dad felt like he had just had some doctors put a number on his days. But knowing that God was in control of all of our days, he was determined to live out however many he had well. My dad was a strong Christian man, and for 14 months I watched him walk out this truth that Jesus had delivered us from the fear of death. His greatest fear during this time was wasting a chance to talk to someone about Jesus that his illness may have given him. He died very peacefully, ready to meet his Savior. Instead of cowering from death, we can proclaim with Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So exactly how did Jesus accomplish all of this? Well, this brings us to our fourth point, that Jesus became our high priest. He became our high priest. 
Verses 16 and 17 tell us, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In his commentary on, the, on Hebrews, Richard Phillips says, The Old Testament priest represented God before man, which was why they were garbed with glory and honor. Their priestly apparel gleamed to portray the righteousness of God before the people. But just as importantly, the priest represented man before God which is why the priest wore an ephod of gold upon which were fastened <clears throat> 12 stones bearing the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. What the Old Testament priests did was to make offerings on behalf of the people so that their sins were forgiven. It was the blood of the animals that they sacrificed that was splattered on the altar and their burned flesh that covered the people's sins. The problem with this system was that it had to be done over and over again because the covering was only temporary. Day after day, the priests labored. Thousands upon thousands of animals killed gallons of blood spilled, and sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But ultimately, these human priests and the animal sacrifices were insufficient to permanently bridge the gap between us and God. So in God's amazing plan, the Son had to become human because high priests are chosen from among human beings. And he had to become a high priest, the only one that was fully human and fully divine, the only one who had fully experienced both sides of the gulf that separates us from God so that he could make a truly worthy sacrifice. He would lay down his life, not only as the priest who makes the sacrifice, but also as the perfect eternally sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Ultimately, it is this self-sacrifice that defeats the devil and takes away his power in death. God's justice is satisfied when Christ bears the guilt and punishment for our sins. Though Jesus is perfectly innocent, when our punishment falls on him, it is taken away from us. God shows that he is just in dealing with sin, yet he is merciful in dealing with sinners. This is the amazing glory of the gospel message. Christ dying in our place and satisfying God's wrath forever. So how should we live in response to Christ's amazing victory? This brings us to our fifth point, where we should remember that Jesus is able to help. Jesus is able to help. <clears throat> the final verse of our text today tells us in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
Some might say that Jesus doesn't know the full human experience because he was not a sinner. Since he never experienced sin's corruption, they say he cannot have full sympathy with us. In reality, I believe the opposite is true. Jesus knows far more about temptation than we ever have or ever will. He, being sinless, has endured temptation far beyond the point where the strongest of us gives in to temptation. B.F. Westcott is surely right when he says, Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. The only weapon the devil now has against us is our own sin. Nobody goes to hell because they are harassed or oppressed or even possessed by the devil. The saying, the devil made me do it, just isn't true. The only reason anyone goes to hell is because of their own unforgiven sins. All the devil has to do is fight to keep you sinning through temptation and try to keep you away from the only one who can forgive your sins. Because if your sins are forgiven and the wrath of God is removed from you, then the devil is powerless and cannot eternally destroy you. But even after our sins are forgiven and our eternal life assured, we must still live in a fallen world where we continue to experience sickness, pain, and temptation. So how do we summarize what we've studied today and apply Christ's victory to help us in our daily walk in this world? First, Jesus helps us by removing our fears. By removing our fears. We have said that he has removed the greatest fear in our life, the fear of death. But even on a daily basis, we are comforted in him. Missionary Elizabeth Elliot tells of an occasion in the jungles of South America when as she and her Indian guide were traveling a primitive path, her trail suddenly dropped into a ravine, the only means across which were a fallen tree. The Indian guide nimbly jumped onto the tree and started across. Elliot, who confessed she was mortified at the prospect of falling, hesitated. Her guide perceived her apprehension, came back across, held out his hand, grasping hers, and led her across safely. The stability of the one who had obvious mastery of the situation gave her the confidence she needed. Psalm 23 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus also helps us by showing us mercy. By showing us mercy. Nothing brings us down like an acute sense of failure. 
Our society goes out of its way to keep people from experiencing this, going so far with kids these days as even giving awards for coming in 11th place in a 12-competitor swim meet. It's sad but true. But Jesus is able to help us because his works and his word clearly tell us that our sins are forgiven. He is the merciful high priest and our guilt is the thing of the past. Ephesians 2 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Jesus also helps us by proving his faithfulness. By proving his faithfulness. Jesus was faithful to the Father's plan, even to the point of his own death. So we can be assured that he will be as faithful to us in our times of need. 1 Corinthians tells us, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Jesus also helps us by sharing our sufferings. By sharing our sufferings. Jesus did not live a life free from adversity or trouble. He experienced such anguish through his death and torment that we will never have to endure. And he did it all for us. Romans 5 tells us more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And finally, Jesus helps us by supplying our strength. By supplying our strength. He is now our eternal high priest, through whom we have direct access to the Father. And he has proved his willingness to support us with his invincible and available power. Ephesians 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Philippians 4 says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. commentator Richard Phillips says so clearly, all that God has done in the redeeming work of Christ was done not for angels, but for you. It was like you that he became. It was for you that he died. It is with you that he now sympathizes, knowing well your struggle. He is able But are you 
willing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the truth of your word that we have heard today. Lord, we thank you for your amazing plan of sending your Son to be our completely sufficient Savior. Lord, we thank you for choosing us to be your children and to know, to know the truth of your gospel message. Lord, I pray if there are those who have heard the word that you have given us today that don't know that truth of Jesus Christ as the Savior in their life, I pray that today would be the day that you would work in their hearts and that they would come to know you as the one true God and your Son as the Lord and Savior over their life. And Lord, we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.